So the other day, I was listening to a podcast that was discussing how Patriots quarterback Mac Jones could potentially improve his play during the offseason. And part of the conversation featured an interview with Tom House. Have any of you ever heard that name before, Tom House? No? I guess I'm the only sports junkie here. <laughs> um, he's a top expert in helping quarterbacks and pitchers improve their throwing motion. He's worked a lot with Tom Brady. Um, it was fascinating to hear all the ways that they're able to help these athletes excel in their sports. Now, of course, very, very few parents could ever afford to pay for Tom House to coach their kids up. It would just be thousands of dollars, I imagine. So it piqued my interest when I heard him mention that they've actually developed an app called Mustard, which I'm, I'm assuming has to do with put a little mustard on the ball, um, that parents can use to help their kids improve their throwing motions. You just take a video of your kid throwing and the app is able to offer an assessment of how they can improve. Now, that alone is interesting, but then the host mentioned another easily overlooked benefit in the app. I'm not sure if how many of you have experienced this, but lots of kids don't welcome constructive critiques from their parents. And so it's not unusual for there to be a little bit of friction when uh, dad offers some advice. After all, he's not a professional athlete or an all-star coach. He's just dad. What does he know? The app comes in as an authoritative third party because Tom House designed it, this world-renowned expert. And so the kid is compelled to listen, and some of the tension is cut out because dad isn't the only source of opinion in this situation. And uh, so the host suggested that it helps parent and child have a better time together practicing sports. Now, of course, you could have all a good time also if dad was just patient in his explanation, if the child was willing to listen and not so stubborn, but... More often than not, that skepticism about dad's expertise just gets in the way. Especially when you first become a teenager and you obviously know everything. Um, we see a similar dynamic at play in the life of Jesus, except in reverse. He is a son of the little village of Nazareth, but when he comes home, he finds that his people aren't receptive to him. So this morning we're going to be picking up in Matthew 13, in the last verses of this chapter, verses 53 through 58. Matthew 13, starting in verse 53. Starting in 53. Matthew records, When Jesus had finished these parables, he moved on from there. Coming to his hometown, 
began teaching the people in their synagogue, and they were amazed. Where did this man get this wisdom and these miraculous powers, they asked? Isn't this the carpenter's son? Isn't his mother's name Mary, and aren't his brothers James, Joseph, Simon, and Judas? Aren't all his sisters with us? Where then did this man get all these things? And they took offense at him. But Jesus said to them, A prophet is not without honor except in his own town and in his own home. And he did not do many miracles there because of their lack of faith. So Matthew has Jesus moving on from the place in which he had been teaching some parables along the seaside of Galilee. And um, given on some of the details that we've seen in these chapters, where uh, Matthew records how he left the house and went to the seashore, it suggested that he was leaving Peter's house, which was located in Capernaum. And uh, if the sound booth can just go to the next uh, slide, you can see Capernaum's right up there by the shore, and Nazareth is right down there. Now, I've shown this picture before because earlier in Matthew, in Matthew 4.13, it's mentioned that Jesus left Nazareth, which is his hometown, to go to Capernaum, and that's where he really started getting quite active in his ministry. Um, so this passage here is recording a return back home. Um, now, on his, on his first visit to Nazareth, back in Matthew 14, we find a parallel passage in Luke 4, which um, records how Jesus went into the synagogue, read from the prophet Isaiah in chapter 61, and basically indicating to the people that he was the Messiah, and uh, they were not very happy about it because he insinuated uh, that the Gentiles were, were righteous and uh, might possibly have a place in all this. And so they, um, they decided they were going to try to throw him off a cliff, and Jesus escaped. Um, now for this passage here in Matthew 13, we find its parallel in the Gospel of Mark, in uh, chapter 6. Um, now, some have suggested maybe this is all just one visit at Nazareth, but again, the details in the gospel seems to suggest two visits. Um, and what both visits indicate is that the people continue to be resistant to Jesus and his ministry. And so on this return, Jesus finds that the people have not changed. Now, they've heard him teach, um, and they've heard about his miracles, the signs that, have, that he's performed, and they're kind of cumulatively amazed. They ask, where did this man get this wisdom and these miraculous powers? Now, you'll recall that this is not the first time that Jesus has left people wondering where his powers come from. Back in Matthew 12, we find Jesus casting out a demon, and the Pharisees saying, oh, he ca he's casting that out by the power of the devil, by demonic power. Um, so, in, but in this case here, um, Nazareth, the people of Nazareth don't rush to say that it's demonic power, but their doubts stem from the fact that he's one of their own. Now, Nazareth is just a little village. It's a village of like 300 to 400 people, and it has a bit of a reputation as just being kind of a backwater town. Uh, we hear this outside opinion 
articulated in the Gospel of John, in John 1, verses 45 through 46. One of the disciples, Philip, went to uh, Nathaniel, who at this point wasn't a disciple, to tell him about Jesus. And he tells him, We have found the one Moses wrote about in the law, and about whom the prophets also wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. And this is Nathaniel's reply. He says, Nazareth? Can anything good come from there? And Philip responds and says, come and see. And so Nathaniel ends up becoming a disciple because uh, Jesus tells him things about his life that we don't know the significance of, but it it was enough to make Nathaniel believe that Jesus was, in fact, uh, the Messiah, the one whom Moses was writing about. Now, we also see that part of the indicate, part of the reason why the people were resistant to Jesus' authority is because he was just like them in the fact that he didn't have much of an education. Um, when Jesus is in Jerusalem, in John 7, verses 14 through 16, it's recorded that uh, the Jews were amazed when they heard him teaching and said, How did this man get such learning without having been taught? And Jesus' response to them was this. He says, My teaching is not my own. It comes from the one who sent me. So the people here in the temple courts, they were looking for a natural explanation as to why Jesus had all this wisdom and power in his teaching. And the people of Nazareth were looking for kind of naturalistic explanations. And Jesus says, You can't explain my teaching and my powers in that kind of way. Because all this is coming from the one who sent me, my Father in heaven. And this isn't what the people of Nazareth should have concluded, that Jesus was of divine origin. But they kept stumbling over his humble human origins. When Jesus was in Capernaum, we see similar doubts being expressed based on just the people that Jesus is related to and just how common they are. In John 6, verses 41 through 42, it says, At this the Jews there began to grumble about him because he said, I am the bread that came down from heaven. So a very big claim there. And they said, Is this not Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How can he now say, I came down from heaven? So the people in Capernaum and the people in Nazareth see Jesus' just very common, humble humanity as a problem for his claims of authority. Now, as the disciples in the early church were shown, um, the very kind of gritty humanness of Jesus' existence was not a problem but a feature. Now, it was necessary that Jesus would be fully divine in his being because only God can fix us. If Jesus was merely human, we'd be stuck in our problems because none of us are able to dig up, none of us are able to dig this world out of the problems that we've put ourselves in. But at the same time, it was necessary that he would also be fully human. So it's not that Jesus is half divine and half human, but 
that he is fully divine and fully human. Because we are the problem. And it's a human problem that needs to be fixed by human beings, even though we can't fix it ourselves. And so it was necessary that the Son of God would become fully human. We're responsible to justify ourselves before God, but cannot. And so Christ comes and does justify us before God through his sacrifice on the cross. We are infected with a sinful nature that we pass on from one generation to the next. Only Christ offers a cure. Only he can free us from sin's power. And he can only pull that off if he's fully God, because man alone is corrupted. He's got to be fully God and fully man. Now, the people that Jesus was speaking to would have had a tough time even anticipating that God would actually come to them in the flesh. But the fact of the matter is, is they were just doubtful because of he just didn't seem to have all the religious credentials that they would expect. And this doubt extends even to his own family members. So people are knocking Jesus because of his own family, and his own family is like, yeah, like, how could anything good, how, how could anyone, how could the Messiah possibly come from us? And John 7, in verse 5, it records that even his own brothers, even Jesus' own brothers, did not believe in him. Now, the thing is that, and it's kind of ironic, is that none of this is a problem for Jesus' claim of being the Messiah. In fact, it points to the fact that he's the Messiah, that people are rejecting him on this very superficial kind of basis. In Isaiah 53, verses 1 through 3, this is what the prophet says. He says, Who has believed our message, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? He, and this is referring to the coming Messiah, he grew up before him like a tender shoot and like a root out of dry ground. He had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him, nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by mankind, a man of suffering and familiar with pain, like one from whom people hide their faces. He was despised, and we held him in low esteem. That's exactly what Jesus is experiencing people from, from his own people here. They're holding him in low esteem. They don't want to have anything to do with his, him and his ministry. They keep stumbling over Jesus. And, and Jesus actually anticipates this stumbling. If you go back to Matthew 11, verses 3 through 6, we have the, the disciples of John the Baptist coming to Jesus, asking him, are you the one who is to come, or should we expect someone else? And Jesus replies to them and says, go back and report to John what you hear and see. The blind receive sight, the lame walk, those who have leprosy are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, and the good news is proclaimed to the poor. Blessed is anyone who does not stumble on account of me. Now the people of Nazareth were familiar with all these things. They were familiar with his teaching, they are familiar with the powers that he was exercising through these miracles. And yet, sadly, 
the people of Nazareth are not counted among those who are blessed because instead of believing, they stumble over Jesus. So again, in the second half of verse 57-58, we learn Jesus' response to their reception. Beginning in the middle of 57, it says, But Jesus said to them, A prophet is not without honor except in his own town and in his own home. And he did not do many miracles there because of their lack of faith. Now, in saying this, talking about how a prophet is not welcome in his own town and in his own home, what Jesus is kind of bringing back to mind is how he's really truly following in the footsteps of the prophets who came before him, going all the way back to the first prophet, Moses. If you read about the prophets in the Old Testament, what you find is that they were not very popular people because they spoke difficult words. Very often they had to come to the people of Israel and say, hey, what you're doing is wrong, and if you keep doing this, God is going to bring destruction on us. And that was not a message they wanted to hear. They wanted teachers who told them, everything's great, just keep doing what you're doing. And going all the way back to Moses, we see this kind of friction between God's prophet and God's people. Now, recall, when Philip went to Nathaniel and said, hey, you've got to come and check this guy out, he kind of underscored how significant he thought Jesus was by saying that Jesus was this one whom Moses had talked about, who, who said would come after him. And if you go to Deuteronomy 18, verses 15 through 19, we see there Moses predicting the coming of Jesus, the coming of the Messiah. There, Moses writes, The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your fellow Israelites. You must listen to him. For this is what you asked of the Lord your God at Horeb on the day of assembly when you said, let us not hear the voice of the Lord our God, nor see this great fire anymore, or we will die. The Lord said to me, What they say is good. I will raise up for them a prophet like you from among their fellow Israelites. I will put my words in his mouth. He will tell them everything I command him. I myself will call to account anyone who does not listen to my words that the prophet speaks in my name. So, after... Moses speaks those words over a thousand years later after Jesus' life, death, resurrection, and ascension, going to the early life of the church. We hear Stephen, one of the first deacons of the church, testifying to this connection between Moses and Jesus. This is in Acts 7, and I'd encourage you to turn there because um, it's pretty significant, the connections that he makes there. Acts 7 starting in verse 24, and we'll jump around a little bit going through these verses. Stephen has been brought before the Pharisees and Sadducees, the the religious leaders, because they've heard him preaching, and uh, Stephen ends up getting stoned to death after giving this speech. But being full of the Holy Spirit, this is what he has to say, starting in verse 24. Moses saw one of them, and, and, that, and that them there is referring to the Hebrew people, being mistreated 
by an Egyptian. So he went to his defense and avenged him by killing the Egyptian. Moses thought that his own people would realize that God was using him to rescue them, but they did not. The next day, Moses came upon two Israelites who were fighting. He tried to reconcile them by saying, Men, you are brothers. Why do you want to hurt each other? But the man who was mistreating the other pushed Moses aside and said, Who made you ruler and judge over us? Are you thinking of killing me as you killed the Egyptian yesterday? And jumping down to verse 35. This is the same Moses they had rejected with the words, Who made you ruler and judge? He was sent to be their ruler and deliverer by God himself through the angel who appeared to him in the bush. He led them out of Egypt and performed wonders and signs in Egypt at the Red Sea and for 40 years in the wilderness. This is the Moses who told the Israelites, God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your own people. He was in the assembly in the wilderness with the angel who spoke to him on Mount Sinai and with our ancestors. And he received living words to pass on to us. But our ancestors refused to obey him. Instead, they rejected him and in their hearts turned back to Egypt. And jumping down to verse 51. You stiff-necked people, your hearts and ears are still uncircumcised. You are just like your ancestors. You always resist the Holy Spirit. Was there ever a prophet your ancestors did not persecute? They even killed those who predicted the coming of the righteous one. And now you have betrayed and murdered him. You who have received the law that was given through angels, but have not obeyed it. So what Stephen is highlighting here is that just as Moses was rejected, in like manner, Jesus has been rejected. The people of Nazareth might as well be saying, who made you ruler and judge? It's an indication that they have a lack of faith. And the result of that lack of faith is that not many miracles are performed in Nazareth. And I love the stark picture, the stark description that Mark gives us in his gospel. In Mark 6, 5 through 6, he says, he, meaning Jesus, Jesus could not do any miracles there except lay his hands on a few sick people and heal them. He was amazed at their lack of faith. Now I think this this description here kind of testifies to the truthfulness of the Gospels. Because if you're just trying to just make up legends about Jesus, if you weren't really interested in the truth and just wanted to kind of paint an ideal picture, who in the world would say that Jesus couldn't do miracles? Um, that's not how you would concoct a story. It's kind of a bad look. But what it indicates to us is that the disciples... Matthew is really recording what, what happened here. So what meaning do we make of it? Is it kind of a knock against Jesus? No, it's not a knock against Jesus because there's nothing lacking in him. It's what's lacking in the people because God had divinely ordained that the conditions under which miracles would occur in these situations would be that those persons would have faith. Now, of course, not all miracles depend on human beings having faith. We look at the creation of the universe. That was a miracle which preceded faith. And yet, it is often the case 
that God, in accordance with God's will, miracles are only performed where human faith in him is found. If we look earlier in Matthew, we see this. In Matthew 9, and verses 20 through 22, we see Jesus um, going through the crowds and the woman who had a bleeding disease coming up and touching his cloak because she believed even if she should just touch him and she would be healed. And this is what he, he says to her. He says, Take heart, daughter. Your faith has healed you. Now, it's obviously not the case that the faith itself healed her, but it was faith in Christ and his power, in God's power. If you look further along in Matthew 9, in verses 27 through 29, Jesus is being followed by a couple of blind guys. And they're so determined that Jesus would heal them that they follow him into the house that Jesus goes into. And he touches their eyes and says, according to your faith, let it be done to you. So, Nazareth, Nazareth is not blessed with as many miracles as were exercised in other places because they lacked faith. And we know this because this is what the scriptures tell us. And we can suppose that Matthew either received this insight through the Holy Spirit or probably even more likely that Jesus told this to his disciples. The disciples are probably like, why don't you do this or that? You know, maybe this would help kind of Turn the people in your favor. And he's probably like, I'm not, I can't, I can't do this because they just lack, they lack faith. Now, I think there's an important note that we need to make here. Because so often, I think there's people who like to take this principle out of context and conclude that where there are no miracles, there must be no faith. Now, that's the wrong lesson to take away. Yes, more often than not, faith is necessary for miracles to occur. And that's why we should pray. And if we're not praying as a church for God to act miraculously, whether that's through physical healing or through the spiritual redemption, because in truth, that's a greater miracle. If we're not praying for those things, then we're indicating that we're lacking faith, or we're putting faith in the wrong things. Maybe we're putting our faith in ourselves. But something that we have to recognize is that God will not always answer our prayers by removing what is causing us suffering. He will not always take our suffering away. Paul has this to say about his own life in this regard. In 2 Corinthians 12, verses 7-9, through 9, he says, so to keep me from becoming conceited because of the suppressing greatness of the revelations, a thorn was given me in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to harass me, to keep me from becoming conceited. Three times I pleaded with the Lord about this, that it should leave me. But he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses, so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. Now, we don't know what this thorn was that Paul was, was experiencing. Could have been something physical in his flesh or maybe emotional. But whatever it was, 
God allowed that source of suffering to remain. Now, in our situations, we don't always know all the reasons why we suffer in particular ways, but I do think that when God allows it to remain, it must be in part so that we too can hear the words that Paul, that God speaks to Paul. My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Miracle or no miracle, God's purpose is to lead us to put our faith more firmly in the power of Christ rather than human powers. So stepping back, we can place Jesus' visit in the larger context of what he has just preached in the parables here in chapter 13. He has told us that the kingdom of heaven is not received the same by all people. Just as seed sown in good soil will grow, but seeds sown on hard, stony, or thorn-infested soil will only die. He's told us that in the end, there will be separation between the weeds and the wheat, the good fish and the bad fish. Here in Nazareth, Jesus is confronted by bad soil, bad fish, and weeds. In the larger picture of God's history with the people of Israel, we find God's people yet again rejecting his word, ignoring the clear signs of divine authority that Jesus was exhibiting. Instead, their eyes are fixed on Jesus' credentials in the realm of human authority. They see nothing but a carpenter's son. They're offended by his claims. These are important details to notice in forming our picture of Jesus and God's work to save us. We are reminded yet again that human beings can take no credit. Jesus was mostly rejected when he appeared on the scene. Secondarily, there is a lesson here for us to also be learned in that if Jesus was rejected because he couldn't point to any worldly status, we can expect the same for ourselves. Thinking of how Jesus was rejected by his own family, consider again what he tells us back in Matthew 10, verses 21 through 22. Brother will betray brother to death, and a father is child. Children will rebel against their parents and have them put to death. You will be hated by everyone because of me, but the one who stands firm to the end will be saved. Now, of course, we don't claim that we're the bread of life come down from heaven, as Jesus so rightly does. But we can expect people to discount our message about Jesus when we share in his humility. The church doesn't limit her members to the rich, to the famous, or to the best and brightest. Jesus' brother, James, instructs us along these lines in James 2, verses 1 through 4. He says, My brothers and sisters, believers in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ must not show favoritism. 
Suppose a man comes into your meeting wearing a gold ring and fine clothes, and a poor man in filthy old clothes also comes in. If you show special attention to the man wearing fine clothes and say, here's a good seat for you, but say to the poor man, you stand there, or sit on the floor by my feet, have you not discriminated amongst yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? When we judge like this, we judge against Jesus Christ. Jesus did not come to us wearing fine clothes and a gold ring. We think maybe the world would come to Jesus if we had celebrities and leading experts on our side. The truth is that they would not. Oh, they might come to church and rub shoulders with us, just as they did in centuries past, but it would have nothing to do with Jesus. Their attraction would be to worldly power, not the power of Christ. The power of Christ is found in weakness, not in piles of wealth, physical abilities, collective gray matter, or status and influence. We witness the power of Christ as we respond with faith. Like Paul, we don't always get what we desire, but in prayer we will always receive what we need. The people of Nazareth missed out because they lacked faith. God would not show his power because they lacked faith in his power. They were only concerned with human power. It's easy for us to fix our eyes on human power. We have to ask ourselves individually, and especially as a church, are we missing out at all because of a lack of faith? Maybe. We shouldn't be simplistic and ascribe all disappointments and struggles to a lack of faith. After all, Jesus promises us that things aren't going to be easy. I do think it is an important reminder to us. We need to be people of prayer. We need to be people who seek the intervention of God's power for his church. Likewise, we need to step out in faith, believing that God can lift up our weak hands. He can be our strength to accomplish his will. If we focus on our smallness, on our weakness, on our low esteem, then like the people of Nazareth, we are not focusing on the power of Christ which fills his body, including this local body, the church. Instead, let us see Christ for who he is, the King of kings and Lord of lords. Let us put faith in his power. Let us trust him at his word. Let us pray. Father, we do pray for that grace to trust in Jesus Christ, your son, more and more and more. Father, we confess that like the people of Nazareth, we can be so vulnerable to being caught up in human authority and power so that we lack the proper faith that we ought to have in Christ 
and to see His power manifested in our midst. Father, we pray that rather than bemoaning any smallness or weakness that we see about us, Father, that we would see it as an opportunity for Your glory to be displayed through the body of Christ. And Father, we do pray that You would work in this body to show the power of Your work of salvation that Christ has brought about. And Father, we pray that for those here in Situate, for those who are our friends and our family, that You would break down the blinders that are over their eyes, Father, preventing them from seeing Jesus for who He is. Father, may they see that He is the King of kings and Lord of lords. And may You use us as Your vessels, as Your instruments in showing the world who He is. We ask this in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. Lord bless you as you go and drive safely. Hey there, Pastor Tom here. I hope you enjoyed this sermon I offer to Rockland Community Church. Rockland Community Church is located at 212 Rockland Road in North Situate, Rhode Island, just around the bend from Situate Public High School. We invite you to join us in person or virtually this Sunday as we continue our series through the Gospel of Matthew. It's our joy to welcome you into our community.